Does everybody have books? What are you lacking? Oh, you did some. The mansion? I happen to. Actually, there's. Mary, can you get one of those? Because um, I want to keep one for us. And I've ordered a couple of more, so. there's any business I can't remember the dates over the holidays um, there there may be a conflict I haven't gone over the schedule that I gave you you all got the schedule the reading schedule that we turned out to gave you right mm -hmm. um, I know that in in some weeks the church is going to be closed so the building will be closed we may have put in a, um, a schedule of reading for that week when in fact we have to cancel it. I don't know, but I'll, I'll check on it. But right now we're going to do the three Faulkner novels. Um, I think you're going to be amazed, truly. It's, and I'd, I'm assuming that you're all going to find a little bit of trouble reading Faulkner, but um, if you've been reading The Hamlet, you know it's much easier than Go Down Moses. And as you get into it, it'll get easier and easier because you, you'll get a feel for the story and what's going on. Um, but it's pretty straightforward. To me, he's doing an amazing thing. I, I've been taking him to the gym with me when I work out on the reclining bike and reading them. And every once in a while, I just burst into laughter. <laughs> sure, the people around me think how strange and uh, what are you reading. But um, to me, it's just... And, and I'm, the older I get, the more in awe I am of Faulkner. Because I can, I'm watching him set things up, um, and I'm just amazed at what he does. Um, one of the sh you gave them the bibliography sheet, Doc. The bibliography. Does everybody? Have? I think so. Yeah. Um, if you take a look at the bibliography sheet, it, um, I think they're either 15 or 17 years between the publication of. Um, the Hamlet. Seventeen. Oh, I don't even see it here. Oh, there. Yeah, nineteen forty. And the town in nineteen fifty-seven. So seventeen years. Um, and when you read it, it'll—I'm sure it'll feel for you like it's a seamless shift from one to the other. That it, you, it just picks up and continues the story. He's going to do amazing things in the town because we're going to watch people begin to come together to fight this, this spread of Snopesism. Um, but how he could have let 17 years pass before he picked them up and then do what he did and then continue at the mansion to me is, is just amazing. Hi, Joan. Um, anyway, we'll do that for three weeks and then we're going to, do, we're going to move out of America I'm so aware of that right now because the focus has been so much on America and the South. And we'll do C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we're, yeah, but that's set up for next year. But. So let's start. Um, any prayer requests? It's been a while since we've been together.
And I know difficulties don't stop for any of us. Burdens and heartaches. And In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, and the gift of yourself to us in the Mass this morning, your words to us, Father's homilies always, for your presence with us. You, you call us to repent. Um, you were surrounded by people who came to you and asked to be healed. Heal us all, please. Um, help us to give ourselves um, to all that you ask of us. We can't change unless we're willing to see our sins. You came for sinners. Um, I'm trusting we're all, we're all together in that or we wouldn't be here. But um, you came for sinners. Um, open our eyes. Help us to see. Give us courage not to turn away, to learn to see ourselves more deeply, and to turn to you for grace, um, to finding you a help we cannot give ourselves. Help us all to be strengthened by the work that we do together, and help us to carry out into the world everything that we do here. Um, I ask a special blessing on relatives and families and friends of all of us here who struggle, um, whatever worries we carry in our hearts. Um, for Christopher and Kayla, um, um, I want to give you thanks. We give you thanks for this time together tonight. We offer these prayers in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, let's let's go back and pick up the quartets. Can you turn to East Coker, the third section? Remember, Elliot, um, has been principally concerned with this, the, the, something we, we have to describe as mystical or, or apophatic. He's dealing with an apophatic um, kind of a knowledge of those things that, that, we, that we can't know through our senses. We have to come at it another way. He's dealing with a mystical reality and the, the way it um, impinges on our world so that his language is always struggling to, to do it justice to what's here right in front of us. Um, but in a way that makes us aware that something more has been going on, and he's been doing that in every one of the quartets. Remember, in the in the um, in the other, in the first one, we we talked about all the ways in which um, things gave a sense of other things, and that all things had a still point in common. Every uh, the wheel, the violin, the vase, the dance, the staircase, all of those things. In um, in East Coker, um, he's concerned principally with the same thing again, but this time he frames it in terms of the cyclical nature of things. Ecclesiastic, the voice of Ecclesiastic is really strong here. There's a time for this, there's a time for this, there's a time for growing, a time for dying. So he's looking at the cyclical processes of nature, which ordinarily people would take as proof that there is no timeless still point, that God doesn't exist, everything's cyclical. 
That's, a, that's an old and a very modern way of looking at things. And it's natural because nature itself is cyclical. Um, we're in the middle of fall, we're heading to the center of winter, spring will come, be followed by fall or spring, summer, and then fall again. That repeats itself. So there's a, there's a constant principle of, in nature even while it's cyclical. And Eliot is concerned to be faithful to the cyclical quality of things and still show us that there's something there underneath. Um, he suggested it in the second section, what is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring? We're in the middle of fall and there are already signs of spring, of life returning. It's always there. He, he doesn't go into it much here. I, 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 I think I mentioned it to you last time, when we get to Little Gidding, he's going to pick up this thing again, except what he does there blows me away. I mean, I, I hope to show that to you then. And then once again, at the end of the second section, he returned to his concern for words. It's one of the constant themes in every one of the quartets. And then he ends the second sec section. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, be because we have this sense that as we get older, we're much wiser and have so much more to pass on. I think there's a truth to that. But Eliot's aware that there's something foolish to it, because there's always things we don't see. Even, even as we age and mature. Do not let me hear the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. There's this sense of repetition, things going to dust. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Um, a, a wonderful ending because one of the questions it seems to me the second section leaves us with is this. As we get older and think of ourselves as wiser, have we grown in humility? Um, you know, the last words, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. I mean, I'll go out on a limb here. I think uh, lots of us, we know lots of people, um, it frightens me when I think about myself. We know lots of people who, who, who get older and think they have all the answers to things. Have they grown in humility? And it's just another thing. Lots of us can get older and not grow in humility. So, The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Part three. <coughs> oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon, and the almanac Gagatha, and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors. It's, it's amazing because no matter how self-important we are, no matter what our achievements here, it's all going to come to dark. Father's constant metaphors, there's a six-by-six six coven awaiting for all of us. There's no way we're going to escape it. And the Stock Exchange Gazette, the directory of directors, and cold the sense and lost the motive of action. 
and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness, and we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama, and the bold, imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointed to the agony of death and birth. You say, I am repeating something I have said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go th through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Remember I've been saying all along, um, particularly when we did the early, earlier works from Virgil to Dante, there was St. Augustine, um, um, and, and then Dante and St. Thomas behind him. St. Augustine's image of our life here on earth, he likened to a, um, a peregrine, a, a pilgrim, that um, we're always in movement. And one of the great truths that St. Augustine passed on to us was, this is not our home. We're not meant to be completely at rest here. If things ever get too comfortable, it's probably a sign that something's wrong because we should be on our way. And I, I tried to support that with um, examples of the Eucharist. When we take the Eucharist and we take Christ into us, where are we? I mean, I'm saying that really truthfully. If he, if he brings the kingdom into us, within us, that it dwells within us, is it sufficient to say, here I am with this thing in front of me, a blackboard, you know, with all of us around, or each one of us sitting in a chair, it's where we are, um, but in some sense, with, with the mystical things that Eliot's talking about, the only way to really know how we are here is to know that in some ways we're not here, that there's something else going on, and the only way 
that that can be a part of us in some healthy manner is to acknowledge. Um, there's so much more going on that we don't know, and if we don't acknowledge that, it's like we're confining ourselves, restricting ourselves too much to time and space, because there's a lot more going on, particularly if you're a believing Catholic and you believe in the Eucharist. So while the words sound um, like he's talking gibberish or nonsense, what did I do? What did I do with my... Oh, as if he's talking gibberish, I mean, there's a truth to it. To arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, where are we going? Are we on our way there? You must go by a way wherein there's no ecstasy. I'm assuming because in those ecstatic moments, we don't want to leave them. We want to be here. To, to do what he's talking about asks for a complete renunciation of ourselves, which is what Christ asked. We can't even get close to what Eliot's talking about if we don't renounce, put ourselves away, renounce ourselves, deny ourselves. Because the assumption is it's only when we do that that we open to that other world. Or the other way of putting it is the, it's, it's only when we do that that we begin to come out of the cave. And I've been using that image forever. Remember, the people in the cave are changed. They think they have the answer to everything right in front of them. And it's only when they begin to question. And when you do that, you realize that what you think you know is not what you really know, because there's more that you don't know outside. So. Okay. <clears throat> Faulkner's the Hamlet. Before, before we do that, I want to just briefly go over some of the more important things that we talked about last week. I want to try to do this really briefly because I'd like to read some, pas some passages from the Hamlet because I just think they're so funny. Um, when I picked up the Hamlet earlier, I think last week, started reading in the gym, it took my breath away because I realized as I was reading the opening chapters that what Faulkner was doing um, was exactly what we had been talking about the week before. I mean, some of you missed it, but, um, but what I did was go over the social contract theory and the, the, the way the modern mind has formed a contractual habit of thinking of things. It defines the way we do things. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And if there's a contract, you're always trying to best each other. You want to get ahead. And you know from the opening pages of the, of the Hamlet that that's all it is. You've got all these male men with their male egos trying to best one another. And Jody Varner, who is the son of the guy who's in control of everything, is stupid enough to think he can go up against Ab and Flynn, and he no sooner you know, commits himself to getting Ab to sign that contract so he'll be one of his tenants that he realizes it, it was the worst thing he should have ever, he ever did in his life. And so one of the things we learn immediately in the opening chapter is that we're looking at the modern world, even if even we're looking at tenant farmers, you know, they're not CEOs, they're not men with a tie in New York City or San Francisco or Dallas. These are tenant farmers and a sewing machine salesman and a store clerk. But there's nothing they're doing that doesn't correspond exactly to what goes on in the modern entrepreneurial world. Um, so what Faulkner's doing is going beneath it and showing it's not even a matter of it's a characteristic of the wealthy and the rich and the educated. 
that's endemic to our culture. It's what everybody does. Um, it's, it's hard for me to see that things were any different immediately after the fall. You know, when people became rivals to each other and they got proud and wanted to outdo each other and, because that's the nature of the human city. So, um, so without even anticipating that, because I hadn't read the, the Hamlet in a long time, I was laughing because it, it so fit in with what we were doing in a way that I hadn't expected. I want to take a minute and go back and, and give a very quick overview of the commercial regime to try to the deep in the context because Faulkner is going to enrich it greatly. We're going to have three novels on it. So there's not a facet of it we're not going to see. It's a little bit like going back to Dante's Commedia, the Divine Comedy. Remember that the modern commercial republic, as we know it today, came into existence on Dante's birthday. It was the same day that Florence was founded. A new, what they called a burger republic, came into existence. Um, it, what it, the, the importance of it is that it came to existence by separating itself from both the Pope and the Emperor. It, put, it made it possible for people to freely choose what they were going to do instead of getting caught up in those alliances and begin killing each other, because that's what we saw. Because people were so aligned with one party or the other, convinced that they were right, that where they had differences, they went to war. And you know that. The Divine, Com the Divine Comedy is filled with canto after canto of stories of people killing each other because of those allegiances. Sounds like Democrats and Republicans today. <laughs> Um, so, the commercial republic comes into existence then, and that was its nature. It was attempting, it, 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 was, it, it, it was based on, on Plato, partly, largely Aristotle, who believed that man was innately good and that it would, by nature, he was meant to create laws because laws had as their end some good. It's very different from Plato because Plato believed that man was, had a depravity in him and laws were punitive. So after Aristotle was recovered, there was this radical change that produced the Renaissance. These new communes, new art, there was this great flowering of expression in art and development in law and commerce and business and Dante's there at the beginning of it. And he, he, he unfolds it for us in the Divine Comedy. Those of you who've read it know it, so. Um, he makes us aware of the nature, we've seen this, all of you who did this, the nature of the commercial regime. What are the two principal motives of the commercial republic? What drives it? Pride and envy, yeah, pride and envy, getting ahead. Pride and envy, they're the two principal sins, to, to want to be better than somebody else and to get upset when somebody has something that you don't. We saw that at the beginning and the harm that came out of it. So in the Divine Comedy, Dante unfolds that world. I mean, it's, it, it's presented in detail. I mean, it's our world. It, it's like looking at us today. What's the upshot for him? It's going to be very different for him than for Shakespeare for really, for, for self-evident reasons. Um, Dante never said, I mean, Dante wrote a book called World Government. He believed in the importance of the commercial regime because it left, gave that freedom to people to choose. Um, but it also was a really dangerous regime. 
what's Dante's wisdom on it? It's hard for me to say. He doesn't write a track. He, he writes world government, but that's a separate thing. I'm going to say that, um, extrapolate from the Commedia and say, what Dante's teaching us when we go through the Divine Comedy is keep an eye on final ends. Because if you get so caught up in the present and getting ahead, you know what the outcome is going to be because he shows it to us over and over and over again. Either we're going to end up in hell or doing an awful lot of work in purgatory to make up for the things we weren't doing. Yeah? So the whole end of the Commedia is moving towards final ends, he wants to show. And it began with final ends. We were either going to end up in heaven or hell. If we lose sight of that, the people in hell chose to be there. They made those things more important than God. If we go from Dante to Shakespeare, remember, Shakespeare wrote two plays that dealt specifically with the modern commercial republic, Othello and Merchant of Venice. Both of them are set in Venice. Venice, the pro Venice, Florence were the prototypes of America. It's a banking commercial city. Um, what Shakespeare say? Rem for those of you who did Merchant of Venice, you remember um, Antonio was going to lose his life. The merchant of Venice was going to die. Shylock was going to take his life because he was bound to that contract. What Shakespeare is showing us is that one of the ends, one of the dangers of the commercial regime is that contracts become legalistic and people are going to suffer because of it. Antonio is going to lose his life. It's only because Portia comes to save him that, he, that his life is spared. And the tables are turned on Shylock. You all know the story. But what's the upshot? Nobody stays there. They leave to go to Belmont, beautiful mountain. It's there that Portia was raised. She obviously learned philosophy, or she could have never did what she did in that courtroom. She was such a good reader. I mean, she was very knowledgeable. Because it's really clear. Remember what Shylock says when, when they, he makes the contract with, um, with um, Antonio. He has no interest in holding... Antonio to that bond. That's what he says. You know that he's going to do that. He says, because what, what can I get it? What worth is a pound of flesh? It won't buy me muttons or goats or... And it, that to me is one of the most giveaway statements in all of literature. Things in the commercial regime have value only insofar as they're a source of trade. You can buy or sell them. What does that do to the human person? It demeans it. There's no worth. What do we see around it? Abortion? I mean, murders, violence? I mean, um, human beings, we saw it in uh, Heart of the Park, human beings get reduced to this shrunken figure. We turn each other into objects. You, I, um, I've met this young man at the wreck whom I greatly, greatly admire. He's a young kid. He won't leave me alone. Every time he sees me, he's, he's off at Austin College. I saw him yesterday and we were talking about these things. He never stops asking questions and, and he's applying for um, a scholarship. He wants to get involved in uh, um, foreign relations with China, immediately with China. And was asking me a, a question about how to be political about something and, and I made some comment about the Hamlet because I was reading and laughing at it. And, and his response was, but how do you live in this regime without treating people as objects? It was as if that was a self-understood postulate, an axiom, that of course you do that because that's our world. If you're going to get ahead, you have to get over somebody. 
I had a serious talk with him after that. <laughs> but, but I mean, that, that's a sort of given in our world. You know, if you're going to get ahead, you're going to have to beat out somebody. I mean, that's why, that's why when I read the first part of the Hamlet, I was just laughing because Faulkner's laying bare our world in, in a very comic way. Merchant of Venice shows that Venice is inhuman. The, the ultimate threat of it is Antonio's life, the Merchant of Venice. If he dies, if, if Shylock enforces that bond, the commercial regime goes down because who will enter into contracts again? If he's let off, who will enter into contracts? Because they'll be broken. So Shakespeare's going right to the heart of this. That's the comics, that's the funny side of it. But everybody goes away to, Bel to Belmont. In Othello, Othello kills his wife. There isn't anybody in that story that Iago can't manipulate. Everybody takes everybody for granted. They give money too trustingly. You know, the play opens with Rodrigo giving Iago his money as a sign of faith between them. Iago's going to manipulate him through the whole play, everybody. The problem is everybody's too innocent in that regime they, because the nature of it is you have to trust each other if you're going to make a contract, a promise, and go on. So the very nature of the... And here's the outcome. He kills his wife. Which, and, and by the way, there is nobody in Shakespeare's canon more evil than Iago. Why is Iago in the commercial regime? Because there's something in the commercial regime that undermines traditional values. If your aim is money, what happens to friendship, love, honor? Yeah, I hope I'm, I hope I'm not skipping over this too fast. Um, Well, regardless of regime, regardless of time period. I know, but yeah, because we're in a fall. Yes, but the question is, does something about the nature of political regime reinforce that and encourage that? And the answer on the part of these great men is yes. Um, remember, one of the truths in Plato's Republic was, um, Ken asked me the same question yesterday. He said, in order to go into politics, you have to have an understanding of the nature of politics. And I said, no, in order to go into politics, you have to have an understanding of the nature of the human soul, the human person. Plato's great truth, if once a political regime is out of tune with the nature of man, what's going to happen? And he gives the, I mean, if you've read the Republic, you know there are different kinds of regimes, and some of them are, are more congenial to our human nature than others. A democracy should be if it's well run, but so often it's not. When a democracy is vital, even in our fallen condition, it can do more for us than any other regime. Aristocracies, monarchy, oligarchies, tyrannies, tyrannies, you know, the various kinds. So what Shakespeare shows us in Othello is that there's something inimical to the commercial regime that strikes at love and friendship. Remember how Merchant of Venice opens. It opens with Antonio saying he's so sad, and both of his friends come up and say, why are you so sad? And they both give wrong answers. And what emerges in that opening scene is the reason he's so sad is because there is no friendship. People, why not? Because people are too busy making money. I think we've all had that experience. You want to get together with friends and they'll say, sorry, I've got to, you know, that everybody's pressing so much to get ahead that it undermines 
the role of friendship in a regime. Aristotle said, Plato said too, that the, the strongest regimes are those regimes that cultivate friendships because friendship is the glue that holds a regime together. Um, attack that and people are going to suffer every way. So Shakespeare's critique of the commercial regime is a pretty sobering one too. Melville, everybody's wounded. That's a universal condition. Remember, and, ev and everybody gets so caught up with it, they're on this quest with Ahab, and Ishmael's the one who answers it, said the universal stuff goes around, make a place for it. We're all going to get wounded. Um, and then I think the ultimate answer for Ishmael and Melville is, it's only by being open to the, to the being of things, the, the, the wonder of creation, that we can overcome whatever whatever head, heavy or tragic feelings we carry from our wounds. But Melville is very clear-sighted. Remember, the whole first part of, of Moby Dick is a critique of the North and in that industrial whaling industry and the hypocrisies of it. They're not living their Christian ideals. They're, so the whole of Moby Dick is, is an exploration of something deeply American. And we saw what Faulkner was doing with it in Go Down Moses. Um, and Ike makes that choice to renounce his inheritance, to give up what everybody strives for. And, it, um, and he's left with his awareness that it, it didn't answer the sin because Roth commits the sin again, you remember? But don't forget the, the Go Down Moses ends with Molly. I mean, she, we, we have in her as a black woman an image of feminine endurance and hope and a love of truth. I wants it all into paper. I wants it all into paper. The editor could make no sense of it because that's not what the white people do. The white people don't want to get this stuff out. Molly is the one who's going to suffer. It was her grandson who was the murderer. Um, she said, I wants it all in the paper. There's only one person who got it all in the paper. It's Faulkner because we have it in the novel, who was the poet. He's the one that, it's like he honored Molly's request. The whole story's there for us. It's a reaffirmation of poetry again and what, what poetry does. Um, and now <laughs> we've come to the Hamlet, which is Faulkner's great trilogy. So we have to see what, and if you, you know from if you've read the opening, that it's about, it's about this social contract theory because the, the first 50 pages are describing these men who are trying to outdo each other and showing how stupid they are. Um, um, there's the social contract right out in front of us. It's just, it's hilarious to watch. So the social contract, okay, one, and the, the last thing I want to just very quickly. Remember the very nature of the social contract. The great social contract theorists are Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. And it's interesting because Hobbes and Locke are almost opposite to each other. Hobbes be believed that man was depraved. He, he, he lived in a state of war by nature, depraved by nature. And the only way he could come out of that depravity and, and prevent himself from killing himself and each other was to form this social contract, to say, I won't do this if you don't do this. They, they give all the power over to the government. It becomes the Leviathan, the totalitarian government, total power. Um, which, is supposed to, which is supposed to protect us from killing each other. 
there are elements of the Leviathan in our modern regime. I'm trusting everybody sees them, but Rousseau is just the opposite. Rousseau believed that man was inherently good. He believed that the, because governments were all bad, that um, man was in chains and that the way to get out of those chains and recover his freedom was for every man to give his will to the government, what he called the general will. It's like a, it's like a prototype of socialism. He believed that if, if all men gave themselves equally to this general will, that the government would get back equally and it would take away differences between people and all people would get along. It's really like a foretaste of socialism. So we've grown up with this sense of uh, a contractual mind, a sort of legalistic mind. We make contracts, agreements with each other, bind ourselves to them, um, but at the same time, given the nature of our modern regime, always with a mind to getting ahead to improving ourselves. That's the nature of our regime. Um, it's interesting if you look at Rousseau and Hobbes and put them together because Hobbes believed that man was by nature depraved. Rousseau believed that he was innately good. Rousseau had no sense of the fall and Hobbes' view of the fall was complete. It was like a Protestant view that Man was corrupt, in essence corrupt, or, plate, or platonic, you want to put it that way. If you go back to classical teaching, you see a fundamental difference in the nature of man. We get it from both Plato and Aristotle, and I just want to call to mind three important principles that we took away from both of those writers, from Plato and Aristotle. Um, remember, if you if you read Plato's um, The Apology, you know that what, what, what Socrates says in that, this is his trial dialogue. When he goes to trial, he's going to be condemned for impiety and then executed. Plato said that one of the most important, Socrates said that one of the most important things we can do for ourselves is know ourselves, to know ourselves. Remember, in, in that ancient world, there was this wisdom commonly passed around that Socrates was the wisest man in the world. And Socrates denied it because he said, I'm not the wisest man. I don't know what the gods mean to say that of me. And he explored it and found out that if the gods said that of him, it's because he was different from other men in knowing that he was ignorant, that he didn't know what other people did. That's what made him such a nuisance because he went around questioning people and showing them that they didn't know either. And that's why they killed him. So the most important thing for human beings is to know ourselves. John Paul opened Fide Ratio with that quote from Plato, to know yourself, that we're on a quest, that part of our quest is to find out who we are, to discover. That means, that, that means going beyond sociology and politics and psychology. If there's a transcendent aspect to our character as human beings, we, we have to entrust ourselves some way to God to reveal those things to us. I'm going to come to that in a minute because that's what we saw in so many of the stories, you know, the grotesque comedies where revelations were given and, um, to know ourselves. That was one. Um, um, Plato's Republic, when he was attempting to understand justice and he saw that justice was ordering the soul and he came away, one of the great truths of the Republic is in order to be just, we have to mind our own business. We have to be able to see what's wrong with us 
and change ourselves because if we don't change ourselves, we don't mind our own business, which is changing ourselves inwardly, we will never be able to bring to others the justice that everybody deserves. Um, one of the truths of the Phaedo, which was the dialogue um, that follows that just before Socrates' execution, which all the friends come to Socrates and try to persuade him to run away. Because they say, you're being wronged. I mean, imagine how many of, if, if we were unjustly in prison, how many of us would take advantage of our friends coming in and say, run away? If particularly we felt that we were wronged. Socrates says, no, I owe, I owe my life to the state. Everything I am is the result of everything that's been given to me in my life. It's an amazing dialogue. But one of the proofs that comes out of that when he's looking at the nature of the soul and again making the argument that the nature of our soul is to be just to do good to another person, that it's more important to suffer a wrong from somebody than to cause a suffering in somebody else. Now these are, these are all rational arguments. They're not, from divine, they're not from God. They're not from divine revelation. These are the, the fruit of reason doing its work. To know ourselves, um, to mind our business, um, to suffer before we inflict suffering on another, to suffer a wound before we cause suffering in another person. And then Aristotle in the Pontifex, you know, says that virtue is a mean. We have to be aware of the extremes to which we're inclined, each one of us, and parents when they're looking at their kids, to help them become virtuous. Because it's, it's by moving away from those and becoming better and better, more just, you know, that we come more just, more generous, more, more loving, more all of those things, kinder. Those are all the fruits of rational arguments. They're not product of revelation. Look at the contractual mind that we live under today and, and ask yourselves, how many people give any of these things a thought today as, as a part of our rational nature? <clears throat> okay, one just very, very quickly. Um, the last stories we read um, were um, largely dealing with women, and we saw in most of them that um, the women were catty, um, mean, um, um, in the case of, um, what's, what's the, who's the woman in Revelation, Doc? Mrs. Turpin? Mrs. Turpin? In the case of Mrs. Turpin, we had an example of a woman who, before the end of her life, had that revelation. Remember, Mary Jane, Mary Grace threw that book at her, and it sent her home really upset. And we went through this. She begins to question herself and um, has this fight with God. Remember, screams at him and gets this echo back. But she has this revelation of all the souls going to heaven, and she and her husband bringing up the rear. But she's there. She sees. But it makes her aware that all of the things that, she, all of the accomplishments that she's made in the world that made her think that she was among the elect were not so. Because it said the, even the good things, the virtues were being burned off. And it makes us aware that so often if we measure ourselves by the world standards, we can think we're really good. 
and not see that there are some things inside of us that we're not dealing with. Mm -hmm. Sorry, did I, somebody have a question or did I hear something? Um, I think the two, the two, the, the three major figures that we finished on um, were Mrs. May and um, the grandmother and Laura. I want to end with Laura because that's the one we ended on and I really, the ending of that to me is so powerful that I want to, I want to go back and read it for a second. But remember in Mrs. May and the grandmother, we've got images. It, it, let take Mrs. May just first. She spent her life working really hard, trying to be successful. And she, she had the support of her community, which said, told her what a good woman she was because of what she did. But when we look at it, there's something really mean in her inside. She looks down on people. She, she's dishonest. She's dishonest about her family. She's dishonest about the Greenleaf family. She, um, in order to protect her illusion that her own son, it's important for her to, to convince herself, to justify herself that she's doing good by being dishonest about things. So she, she is convinced that Greenleaf is a lesser man, a lesser person than she is, and she's convinced that their children are worse than her own children. What we see is that it's just the opposite. Her own children are nasty when you set them against the Greenleafs. She wants to kill the bull, and, um, and she uses Greenleaf's son as an excuse at the very end when she says, blame your sons because they're the ones making you do this. She won't take responsibility for the act that she does. The grandmother is innocent. She, she likes to see herself innocent until the very end when she looks at the misfit and says, why, you're one of my own. And I know there, there are differences among some of us here, but let me, let me end with my own readings of these. Um, it's the only moment during that story that she allows any evil into her life. And she treats everything innocently. And for her to say, why, you're one of my own, implies in a sense that, that that she no longer sees herself completely innocent, that there's something bad that she's related to. I think in both, I mean, I, I know that there's differences, but I think in both instances, the women receive grace. It's a violent moment. Um, in the May instance, um, um, O'Connor describes her in terms of her sight being restored, even if, um, how did it go, even if... The light is yeah, was it, was it, what was the word that over, overwhelming her? But, but as it would be if you suddenly had your eyes open and you come into the light, you see it. Um, and I think the same thing with um, the grandmother. Even though both of them end with these violent moments, I think by the way they're presented, we're to understand that something shattered that world and grace came into it. Now the important thing to remember here, um, and, it, and it goes true for... Um, Flowering Judas, too. The important thing to remember here is, um, where is that going? Um, Grace came into that final moment. Huh? You said that there was shattering that the moment where Grace came Yeah. Um, God, where is it? Holy cow. Wow. Um, hmm. Oh. Graces are offered all the time, particularly to Mrs. May. The story begins with her in a dream. If you remember, she, she has this dream of, of um, something eating her home, if I recollect it. And she wakes up and sees it's the bull.
but in the dream, it's as if something's trying to get into her life. I think it, it might be a bullet. I can't remember if that was in the first or second dream. In the second dream, she has another a dream, and um, it's an image of the sun trying to burn into her life. And when she's described with Greenleaf, if you remember, she's described in terms of a circle around her. I think that circle is an image of her own sense of sufficiency, self-sufficiency, that she's proud because of what she's done, but she doesn't let anybody into that world. The bull, remember, is presented as a Christ figure. It's got that wreath, and he pierces her heart at the end. So grace is being offered in, in terms of revelations and dreams. Turpin had a revelation. May had those two dreams. So in, in so many of these stories, we're, we're, we're being shown that in these worlds that these people live in, attempting to keep people out, grace is being offered. What is your definition of grace? God offering help to get past ourselves, whatever sins we have, to come out of our world, to open to something more. In terms of Turpin and Mrs. May, it would have been success, you know, that they wanted to make success more important than anything. For Laura, who I want to get to now, it was that political revolution that she committed herself to, but we know from that story that that was a way of hiding from Christ. So grace is a supernatural gift offered to people who live as if they don't need it and who have all these shortcomings as a result of living that way. That's what we've been seeing. I want to turn to, if you can just go back to Flowering Judas just for one second, because to me this is one of the most powerful instances of a, an illustration of the grace. <clears throat> if we don't get through phlegm today, we're okay. I'll, I'll be glad if we start and we can pick it up next week. But. Remember, I asked you this question because it went to this question about reading how well we read. Should have given you guys a quiz. <laughs> because one of the questions that I want, the only question that I would have asked you last week is, what's the tense that Flowering Judas is written in? Would you all have been able to answer it? Were you aware? Huh? Maureen say? Huh? Yeah, well, it, it's written in the present tense. Would anybody have been aware of that? And I, you know, I, I said last week, I, don't, I, I think everybody but Marcy was here, that typically stories are written in what we call the preterite, the past tense, but it's a past tense which has been completed, a completed action has taken place, it's in the story. Flowering Judas is presented in the present tense. Yeah? Yes. Bragioni sits heat. That is, we're there right now. That story is taking place before us right now. And it's that way through the whole story. But why did Porter put this in the present tense? And it's interesting. There are two exceptions to that three, two in the story, two exceptions to that rule. Both of them have to do with those episodes when Laura had to deal with a potential lover. Remember those young men come and declare their love? She comes out of the present tense to recall those two episodes. And then we're back in the present again. So the entire story is told in the present tense until the very end. Now let me read that, because I love this ending. Well, let me give it this way, because I've already said it. You, all of you who are here already know. I think what, what, what um, Catherine Porter's doing 
is she showing that Laura lives in the presence, present moment as a way of hiding from Christ. She was raised Catholic. She's done everything she can to avoid it. Every once in a while, she sneaks into a church. You know, um, like Bragioni, she committed herself to the revolution, hoping that it would bring in a new world, because communism was presented as a substitute for Christianity. It would bring in a classless society where no wars would take place, no more violence. It would be a heaven on earth. And everywhere around them, both Bragioni and Laura, that vision has fallen apart. It's failed everywhere. Bragioni is looked at as a savior by his men. He's a Christ figure. When he goes home to make up with his wife, what does she do? She washes his feet. All he, what he wants to do is take advantage of the power he gained to eat and drink and have sex with women. He's hoping to take Laura to bed. We know that. So for him, because he's disillusioned, he sees that the revolution will fail, even if he's one of the failures. What he wants to do is make the best of it that he can. He's going to get out of it what he can. Laura knows that and she's disillusioned. So she has given herself to the present moment as a way of turning away from any frames of reference in the past, anything she can learn from, anything that would convict her, anything that would implicate her. She lives in the present moment. Except for those two past tense episodes, both of them dealing with love. Until the end. <clears throat> Let me read that. Again, just a... Remember, she, she's, she, has, she was just made aware that Eugenio committed suicide. One of her tasks has been to take drugs to the prisoners. Um, Eugenio was hoping that Bragioni would get him out of jail. He was a savior. He failed him. He couldn't wait any longer. took his life. Bragioni's attitude, he doesn't care. So it's better off without him. If he loses his men, he doesn't care. So she's carrying that awareness and some guilt she feels because she's implicated in his death. Brad Gioni can th dismiss it, toss it off, Laura can't. She goes to bed that night and she tries to quiet herself by counting numbers in the middle of page eight. If you would sleep, you must not remember anything. This is her. She does everything she can not to remember because to do that is to open herself to pain. If you would sleep, you must not remember anything. The children will say tomorrow, good morning, my teacher. The poor prisoners who come every day, irony. Who's a prisoner? She's as much a prisoner as anybody. Oh, by the way, Eugenio, new life. Eugenio, Genesis, Eugenio, new life. She's responsible. I mean, symbolically, think about that. She's implicated in his death. <clears throat> Good morning, my teacher, the poor prisoners who come every day bringing flowers to their jailer. One, two, three, four, five. It is monstrous to confuse love with revolution, night with day, life with death. Ah, Eugenio. She says that of him and doesn't seem to see the irony directed at herself. But notice the tense. The tolling of the midnight bell is a signal, present tense, but what does it mean? Get up, Laura, and follow me. Come out of your sleep, out of your bed, out of this strange house. What are you doing in this house? Without a word, without fear, she rose and reached for Eugenio's hand. What tense? We, is everybody, see, we have now slipped into, in the, in the middle of this vision, this dream she's having. So just remember, hold on to the dreams. Mrs. Turpin had that revelation. 
Mrs. May had those two dreams. It's like Grace trying to... Freud would say, Freud would say the animal unconscious. Modern Christians would say the spiritual unconscious, which Freud didn't understand. It's something divine attempting to enter the human soul. Without a word, without fear, she rose and reached for Eugenio's hand, but he eluded her with a sharp, sly smile and drifted away. This is not all you shall see, murderer, he said. Follow me. Where do we hear those words, follow me? Okay. Yeah, he said, follow me. I will show you a new country. Where is that from? I mean, that's biblical. That's Old Testament, New Testament. I will show you a new country, but it is far away and we must hurry. No, said Laura. What's Laura's talismanic word? No. It says that earlier. The conviction of her life is to say no to everything, to not commit herself to anything, because to do that would mean she has to give up herself and control what, remembering things. No, said Laura. Not unless you take my hand. No. She clung first to the stairs. She's trying to do everything she can to resist this. And then to the topmost branch of the Judas tree that bent down slowly and set her upon the earth. And then to the rocky ledge of a cliff and then to the jagged wave of a sea that was not water, but a desert of crumbling stone. Where are you taking me, she asked in wonder, but without fear, to death. And it is a long way off and we must hurry, said Eugenio. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand. Then eat these flowers, poor prisoner, now, finally. I mean, remember, she's looked at other people as prisoners, the children. <coughs> she looks at them as prisoners. This is the first time that she's seen in those terms. Um, take my hand, then these flowers, poor prisoner, said Eugenio in a voice of pity. Take and eat. What's that from? Yeah, everybody's here. Take and eat. And from the Judas tree, he stripped the warm, bleeding flowers <coughs> and held them to her lips. She saw that his hand was fleshless, a cluster of small, white, petrified branches, and his eye sockets were without light. But she ate the flowers greedily, for they satisfied both hunger and thirst. Murder, said Eugenio, and cannibal. This is my body and my blood. There it is again. Laura cried, no, at past tense. And at the sound of her voice, she awoke trembling and was afraid to sleep. What tense? She's back in the past, yeah? And was afraid to sleep again. She's been living her life in the present. This, she has this dream of Eugenio calling her a murderer and a cannibal. And when she comes out of it, she comes out of it into the past. Why does Porter do that? We're asked to be good. I, I look at this and I think, <laughs> I don't know what, the, uh, this to me isn't literary. I mean, this is just not for literature. I think, how, of, how often are we aware of hiding from Christ in the present moment? What are the things that we do to, you know, to, while we're busy with our whatever it is we do? Or, I mean, these things are not just literature to me. They're, they're, they're so revealing. Every one of these writers has shown us has helped us to see more about what we do, the way we do things. Um, why does she bring us, bring her, when she comes out of the dream, why does she return to the past, or come back to a past tense, instead of the present? Tracy, what's 
roiling around up there. Well, I don't know, but when you said that she was in the presence because so that she wouldn't have to, you know, commit to anything, face anything, deal with her past, or be connected to the her Christian upbringing or Catholic mm. upbringing, and so in her dream she, you know, I think connects to that uh, very Catholic mm. experience of eating body and blood of Christ. And so I think once you're connected to that, even in a dream world, you know, then the past and the present and the future are all kind of... Can you live the same way again? I mean, if, if, the, dream, if the dream speaks to you or... Let me remind everybody of something here, because I'm not... It, it, you all are aware of the Eucharistic imagery here. You can't miss it. Right. But do you see that it's inverted? He murdered, he said Eugenio and Candle, this is my body and my blood. Laura cried, no. It's as if she's feasting on him. Mm -hmm. Remember in the Divine Comedy, I don't know that Porter got this. Um, remember in the Divine Comedy when we got to the depths of hell, those of you who did it? What were the last images in the Divine Comedy in the last, the last three or four cantos? Do you remember anybody? In the, in the and feasting. The the last couple of cantos before the Satan canto, which is the last one, show um, Adam, Master Adam. Um, and remember when Dante's on the ice, he kicks the guy who's feasting on ahead. You, Ruggiero's feasting, the bishop's feasting on the guy's head in the tower. Master Adam is bloated from drinking. One of the, one of the last souls is a, is a soul who committed a sin by, feed, by feeding the... He took on the body of another person because his sin was ho, so heinous. And it involved, I think, feeding other people, chopping up people, I can't remember. Why all those images of feasting? And the final one is Satan feasting on Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Why? If heaven's the opposite of hell, what would you expect? Yeah, if Christ, if Christ offers himself freely as the body and blood and asks us to do the same, what's the opposite of that? When we use other people, to if we're betraying him, to feast on them, to, that is to use other people. What's Laura just done? What, what's being revealed to her in this dream? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Now the question is, in all of these stories where violence is taking place, because this is almost another image of grotesque comedy, are the people receiving? Is the grace breaking through? So even though we've been in a world in which people have turned away from God, every one of these modern, almost every one of these modern writers is revealing something extraordinary about our human condition. They're sort of laying us bare. They've shown this is our world. And yet, in amazing ways, particularly these women writers, Flannery O'Connor and Catherine Ann Porter and Flowering Judas, um, the women are writing about women, and they're, and they're extraordinary in what they're revealing. Um, so even if we're in a world turned away from God, there are these writers, I would say, <laughs> who are prophetic, who are showing us things that are not easy to see, but 
if we take our faith seriously, we're being asked to look at and take seriously. So, extraordinary stories, I think. Let me stop here so we can get to, to Faulkner's Hamlet. But before we do, any, any questions or comments about what we're leaving behind and the modern condition that we're in and some of the reasons for it, the social contract theory, the contractual nature of the modern world, and the, 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 the tendency to use people to get ahead, which is going to be one of the great themes of the Hamlet. Did you all enjoy these short stories? Yes. I really I wasn't planning. You can thank Suzanne. Suzanne said, give them a break from Fogner, for goodness sake. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it, but because it's been 100 years since I've done these, but I'm so glad to have gone back to them because they're just extraordinary stories. They're really good. They're funny and tough to read in some, hard to read in some ways. Okay, remember the definition of great. Marcy asked me, I'm glad you did it again, Marcy. Remember for Flannery O'Connor, grotesque comedy is that particular kind of comedy that's peculiar to Christianity for a couple of reasons. One is her, her description. She said, um, the world's under construction. God is always there working with us. Um, Violence is an occasion for grace because we are so hard-headed, so stubborn, that it takes violence to break through. The question is, will we be open to it? Or do we turn, remember the, the modern bourgeois world wants to be comfortable and successful and this is our home. And so the last thing it wants to deal with is violence. We've got a God who is on a cross for us. So there's the grotesque comedy right at the center of Christianity. There's a God on a cross um, who took his whole divine nature, put it to a cross, and in that gesture on the cross created the most beautiful thing in history that we will ever know. So all the contradictions of our life are there. So grotesque comedy has to do with that moment where good and evil collide. It can, it can never be anything but grotesque. I hope that's clear. Put good and evil speeding each other like two cars, man resistant and God offering. What, what's the character of that collision when they come together? The modern world wants to make everything nice and sweet and comfortable and at the center of Christianity is this belief that it can't be that way. It's, there's something wrong because of the center that is this grotesque moment and that we're all called to participate in. So one of the great values of Flannery O'Connor was that she created these this genre of comedy, you know, these stories. And, and I don't think um, Catherine Ann Porter considered herself as a writer in the grotesque, but she knew O'Connor's work. All these women knew each other. They read each other. They loved, they loved the work that they were doing. Very different women. Very, very different women. Um, it's hard for me to read Flowering Judas and not see a grotesque comic element to the end. It's, it's a little bit darker than, but all of Flannery O'Connor's endings are very, very dark. Yes. Remember I told you she got all these letters from all these elderly people saying, why don't you write nice sweet stories? <laughs> 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 because she, she said, it's not my faith. Um, 
No questions or comments? Are you? No. Just stretching. Okay. No questions or? Okay, let's, let's turn to the Snopes Trilogy. I've already given the story away, I think, by what I said earlier, but let me try to just summarize the, the phlegm section as, as quickly as I can. Did you all got that structural outline that I, that I typed out? Do you have that? Yeah. If you all take a look at that, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, um, I wish I could have gone online and found a study guide that has done the Hamlet, but I, I couldn't find one that was and I didn't have time to put together a summary, but what I did today is, in, in just preparing myself to go through it, is, is quickly summarize each one of the sections. You've, you've all got the summary, right? If you look at the top, you'll see that the Hamlet consists of four books. You all know that, right? The Phlegm, the Eula, the Long Summer, and the Peasants. Those are the four, the four books. And the Phlegm, section is divided into three chapters, chapters one, two, and three, yeah? And the second chapter has three sections, and the third chapter has three sections. And if you go down below, what I've done is giving you a summary according to this. So it's just broken down structurally to match what Faulkner's doing. It's just a convenient structural sort of outline. Um, let me see if I can summarize this quickly. Frenchman Ben is the product of some guy who came to, um, to develop this vision. He had a plantation um, mansion, but he left it and the, the rumors, the stories about him on the part of the country people is that he was probably a Frenchman because that's the way they saw foreigners coming in. Whether he was French or not, they don't know. And the people in the city thought it, that he was a Dutchman. <laughs> I mean, that tells you more about the country and the city than it does the guy who created this place. But Will Varner um, bought it all up and has become the sort of overlord of this enormous um, land. Most of it is parceled out into um, tenant farms, so he makes his living on it. He's become wealthy. He's the circuit judge of the, or the major judge of it. Um, um, he's the major banking source. Um, what we see at the very beginning with Will Varner is really interesting. In some way, he's just, he, he's content to sit back in his chair on the lawn and visit people when they happen to come by. His son Jody runs the store, you know. Um, but it's a really interesting situation. It's a little bit like what we saw in That Evening Sun and Sound of the Fury. The father's nowhere present in the raising of his children. It's, they're just left to grow up. Um, Jody's been given control of everything. And if you, if, I think if we read him closely, it's, it's, it's hard not to shake our heads and think, this guy's in control of everything? I mean, he, he doesn't have a mind, um, but he's inheriting it all. And, and I, I think it's important to keep that in mind because of what happens at the beginning. Because in the very beginning, Ab Snopes comes to Jody in the store 
wanting to rent a farm. It's late in the season, and Jody, this is, here it is, immediately, Jody thinks because it's late in the season, he's got control over this guy. He, he's, he's in a position where he can do things with him. Boy, I just cut. I can't, I can't, Suzanne and I have a couple of houses that we rent when we sold our California home to avoid the capital gains tax, we reinvested it. And I look at this stuff and I think, the temptations towards power or not losing money or making sure you want to get your money because if you don't, you're going to lose money. It's all laid out in the opening section. There, there, there isn't anything about it that Faulkner doesn't expose. Jody immediately thinks he's got a leg up on Ab. And um, he makes this ag agreement to rent to him on certain conditions. And no sooner does he do that than he learns from the guys on the porch that this is the same guy who burnt a barn. And Jody's, <laughs> this is, I'm going to, wait, I'll come back to it. So Jody rents it out, and you know what happens. Flem comes in, and because of what happens between the two of them, he takes over at the store. And no sooner does he take over the store than he finally takes over the gym, or the gin, and some of his relatives come in and take over the blacksmith shop, the school. Um, what you're going to learn, you won't see it here, but in the town, Flem Snopes is going to become the president of the bank. So what we're seeing is the beginning of this rise, of this upward mobility, this, this, the realization of the American ideal, to be self-sufficient, to have it all. Um, he's not causing any harm, he's just resourceful. Let me put it that way. <laughs> he's resourceful. Um, I want to come back to that beginning because it's so funny what Judy does. Um, Ratliff, who is the, the Flem's opponent in all of this, as you'll see, I think you'll fall in love with this guy. He's a sewing machine salesman, very practical. He's got worldly experiences. Um, Ratliff, as a man, is sort of humble and quiet and reserved, very witty, and always detached. He goes around the countryside, and the description of him is he listens to everybody because he's a, what does he call it, a monger in tales and rumors. And he's he, he gossip. Yeah, he, he trades in them. Yes. Because wherever he goes, he's going to sit down on a porch. And, and I mean, Faulkner's so faithful. All these men sitting around telling stories to each other. It had to be that way. I mean, we know that. And he makes a special point of listening to women. He joins them in their groups and listens to them. That's not an accident, because he knows if you're going to learn anything, the, the women are going to be the ones who will, who will have more to say about it. Um, um, hold on. When Ratliff gets wind, that Mink has gone to the gin, and after that, actually sits next to Varner and does the accounting because Jody's back in the store clerking. Flem is now in control of the gin, but not just the gin at harvest time. He's actually doing Varner's accounting for him, not Will. Because clearly, um, Flem has made it possible for Varner to earn more money than he would have earned under Jody. So the two are beginning to chum up together, and Ratliff is getting nervous along with the other men who are doing nothing about it. And Ratliff goes to Mink's note because he has that line where he says, 
he says, if, if, if anybody's going to be able to do anything about this, it has to be one Snopes who would be willing to burn a barn as well as another Snopes. So he knows if Snopes is going to be answered, he has to find another Snopes to do it. And he goes to Mink with this scam to, to sell him this sewing machine. And you know that nobody, or the wife didn't know her. She gets furious with her husband. Um, he gets furious with her. He sells the machine, and to pay for it, Mink gives Ratliff a note that um, is signed by Flem and asks him to cash it in on Flem. So Ratliff knows now that he has the money to, to go to Flem, and he's also learned something about Mink because he knows that one of the things that Mink says to him before he leaves is, I've got a message for Flem. Mink says, he warns him, I'll, I'll come to it because I want to read it. He, it's, it's a warning to his cousin. Ratliff goes back, and you know that Ratliff had made this contract with this northerner who brought this, who bought this immense property to raise goats, and he, and he knows of a farmer that has a parcel of goats, a large bunch, and knows that the northerner needs 50 more goats to fill out his property, otherwise he's going to lose it. So he contracts with that northerner at, I think it's $25, $25, um, when the original note was something like 75. He goes to the store and he talks to the men outside about this, so knowing that Flem is overhearing it and knowing that Flem will go to best him. And Bookwright is saying, go now and take care of the goats, don't go eat. And Ratliff doesn't. He does everything he can to delay because he wants to give Flem time to go buy the goats. And he does. He comes back to the store, and I'll read that scene, um, and says, how much? He said, you beat me. Um, and there's a negotiation for a moment. Ratliff knows that he's in a position to be one up on Phlegm, but then something happens, and I want to get to that. But basically, that's it. After that, and what turns out to be a tie between the two of them, the story ends. The last description is of um, Phlegm sitting in that chair on Varner's lawn. So what we've been watching are these men trying to outdo each other, thinking they can, and all these comic stories showing how stu stupid they are. And all the while, while these men are watching and doing nothing about it, Flem Snopes is on the rise. And one of the last statements was uh, in the final chapter was um, this usurp usurpation of an airship that he took Jody's place. So we're not just watching a man rise, we're watching a way for a culture, a southern culture, to give way. It's like a northern banking, industrial, entrepreneur spirit has entered this agrarian world and is taking it over because the Snopes are multiplying. So the great themes of, of the work, the social contract ethos, that's underneath this culture that's taking over. Remember, until Flem Snopes came, everybody would go to the store. Jody didn't even have to be around. They'd drop the money and walk away. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew that Jody would cheat them a little bit, more or less, because there wasn't a strict ledger. When Snopes comes in, it's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a Pharisaic, legalistic spirit that comes in place. He's got a, he's got a rigid 
um, ledger, and he keeps everybody to it. <laughs> and then, and he, he charges usury. Because remember when, it, when Bookwright is describing, um, what's the guy's name, the other guy, who borrowed the money from Snopes at that interest, and he's been paying interest on it for two years when it was already paid off after one. So Snopes is lending money, he's making interest, it's usury because it's doubled, the guy's loan has already been paid off. We're watching a man rise and in innocence, everybody aware and doing nothing about it. That's why it's called the Hamlet. It's a small agrarian communal world that is being radically transformed after the war, where this certain industrial spirit has entered and we're watching it take over. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a novel about a character and a community, but I think it's also a novel about a principle, it, and it's masculine. It's the, it's the masculine intellect when, it's, when it no longer has any ties to the earth to curb it, once it's set free, it goes. He, um, he just keeps climbing. In the town, we'll see him, the president of the bank. Let me, let's take a look at some of these because they really are comic. Um, I want to just read a couple and then we'll stop early tonight. We'll, we'll, pick up, we'll pick up Flem again and go ahead with the EULA section next week. I don't know that we'll complete it, but um, we'll, we'll finish with the Flem section and start EULA and see where we go. Um, <coughs> I hope, I haven't checked this, I hope our pages match. I'm, I've got it the same vintage book, but it's, um, it's an earlier edition. On my page nine, Flem comes, or Absnotes comes into the store, page eight and nine. On the, what do you have on the bottom of page nine? Can, I've got, what do, you, what do you rent for? Third and fourth, Varna said? Yeah. Yes. It's the same? Oh, good, good. Okay. So, Ab wants to rent, and um, it's late in the season, so um, Jody thinks he's got a leg up on the guy and agrees to make the arrangement to have him as a tenant farmer, so he'll farm the land and Jody will profit from it. Ab leaves, and his as Jody leaves, the men start talking about who this guy is, and he learns from them that this is the same man that burnt a barn when things didn't go well between him and the owner of this, the owner who was renting the land to him. Turns out, by the way, that that's Major Despain, who we already met in Goodhand Moses. And that not only that, but that when, you know the story that, that um, Absnopes walked to Disdain's house and deliberately walked in some cow poop and then went in and deliberately walked on the rug to smear it. It was his way of insulting the man. There's this rigid, self-righteous arrogance to have and he does that. Despain brings the rug out to him and tells him to clean it and you know what he does. I think he uses acid to clean it and rubs it out practically and then gives it back. Despain is furious. He almost can't talk. He's so outraged. The interesting thing that emerges there once you have money, you're in a particularly vulnerable position to those people who don't because you have something to lose. 
That's a fundamental principle of this book. I hope everybody's aware of that. I can't believe any of us, any of us have made money in our life without feeling it, because once you get it, you have to worry about losing it. And think about the things we do in our life not to lose money. It's a pretty universal condition in America. Unless you just go gamble with it. Just <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marcy, you are asking for it. You are asking for it. Oh, Marcy. Oh, God bless. I don't know if you know all the stories about this, but there's been a period here over three or four or five or six months where Marcy and Bob come back from gambling. I, I'm not even good. It's outrageous what she comes back with. Makes me want to touch her and <laughs> go gambling myself. Give her 20 bucks next time. <laughs> I would if I trusted her. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> you would join in. Um, the other thing that he learns is that when, so Despain brings the rug back and then Ab takes it back, it's ruined. And shortly after that, Despain is, he's just speechless. He can't talk, he's so enraged. The next thing Despain learns is that Ab has taken him to court. The judge decides against Ab um, because Despain wants 20 bushels of wheat and he gives the judgment, he says it's too high and he asks him to pay 10. So Ab comes out of that owing um, Despain 10 bushels. It's clear that he's so outraged with that that he burns his barn and leaves. So Jody has that to contend with now. He didn't give that a thought when he was making the arrangement because he thought he had it over this guy. Now, turn to page 12. That night, Jody goes home and tells his father, Will, what he's done. Top of page 12. Um, I hadn't named it all till Vernon told, told me what he did. Now I figure I'll take the paper up there. Tar that is, once he learns that he burned a barn, he's convinced now that he's got it over him. Why? why? Make that clear. Is, is, that, uh, is that clear? I, go ahead. Why? Why does he think he's... Yeah, like, like do it. Have a, have a sense of wrong. Like a, so he's like black, blackmailing. No. No? No, I think, I, well, I, unless I'm wrong, because I don't think. Well, I mean, he assumes that. No, I think okay. he's assuming that because he's already burned one barn, if he does it again, there's no way he can win the case, so Jody's got it on him. Jody's really convinced that he can play this guy. Meaning that he's going to create a contract where if the guy, if he burns No, he won't do that, but he knows that it, if, the, if another barn is burned, it'll be harder for anybody to believe that Ab didn't do it. Here, let's read it on, this, on page 12. You already contracted with Werner said? I hadn't aimed to until Vern told. So it's only when he learns that he burned the barn that he's really convinced to go ahead with it. Because that fact makes him convinced. Then you can point out to him which house to burn to, or are you going to leave that to him? His father already knows what a stupid thing it was. And that's what his father's saying. So you're going to point out the barn he's going to, because the father knows if this is the kind of guy it is, Jody shouldn't rent to him. What's Jody's response? Sure, Jody said. We'll discuss that too. Then he said, and now all levity was gone from his voice, all post and repost of humor's light whimsy, tierce, quarto, and prime. I think those are three fencing gestures when you're 
um, I think when, when you feel like you've got your opponent your, in your repost, you can... Um, all I got to do is find out for sure about that barn. But then it will be the same thing whether he actually did it or not. All he need will all all he'll need would be the first to be to find out all of a sudden at gathering time that I think he did it. Listen, take a case like this. So Jody's <laughs> he's being cunning. He's he's trying to anticipate Ab's move and says, so when it's harvesting time, I'll let him know that I'm aware because he thinks at this point Ab isn't aware and we learn that that's not the case at all. He leaned forward now over the table bulging, protuberant, intense. The mother had bustled out to the kitchen where her brisk voice could be heard scolding cheerfully at the Negro cook. The daughter was not listening at all. Here's a piece of land that the folks that own it hadn't actually figured on getting nothing out of it this late in the season. And here comes a man and rents it on shares that the last place he rented on, a barn got burned up. It don't matter whether he actually burned the barn or not, but it will, it will simplify matters if I can find out for sure that he did. The main thing is it burnt while he was there, and the evidence was such that he felt called on to leave the country. So here he comes and rents this land. We hadn't figured on nothing out of this year. No, we weren't going to make any money out of it. Now, now look at all the money I'm going to make. Cut. This is scary. Um, comes and rents this land. We hadn't figured on nothing out of this year, no how, and we furnish him out of the store, regular and proper. He makes his crop, and the landlord sells it all regular and has the cash waiting, and the fellow comes in to get his share, and the landlord says, what's this I heard about you in that barn? He thinks saying that's going to be a threat. Mm -hmm. the, the, he's got this power over Ab. And it's clear that what he's saying is, I know you've done this. If you do it again, I'm going to take you to court because nobody's going to believe you now if it happens again. They, um, what's this I just heard about you in that barn? They stared at one another, the slightly perturbed opaque eyes and the little hard blue ones. What will he say? What can he say except, all right, what do you aim to do? You lose his furnished bill at the store. Sure. There ain't no way of getting around that, but after all, a man that's making you a crop free gratis for nothing, at least you can afford to feed him while he's doing it. He thinks he's just going to make a killing here. Um, then he learns from Ratliff that, that Flem or Ab did it again, that he burned another barn. And when Jody hears that, he suddenly gets scared. Yes. And he begins to question himself, and then he he wants to go to, and he, and he also learns what happened in court with, with the Spain's rug. Um, and the, the judgment. So he goes to Ab and um, Page 23, he goes to have frightened, top of 23. He stopped shouting because he stopped speaking because there was nothing else to say. He is so nervous he almost can't control his words. Though it was going through his mind fast enough, hellfire, hellfire, hellfire. <laughs> I, I don't know that any of you will get this, but later on, I think it's somewhere in the middle of the town, Ratliff's going to have this vision of phlegm meeting with the devil. <laughs> and, 
and what's going to be at the center of it will be a match, a matchbox. I don't want to go into it, but all these associations with fire and hell, Jody's going hellfire, hellfire, and he has no clue the implications of the words he's speaking right now. I don't dare say leave here, and I ain't got anywhere to say, go there. He's frightened because if he tells him to go, what does he think Ab's going to do? Burn his barn. <laughs> so, I mean, watch this, because this is so amazing, just amazing. Because, um, all right, Varna said, we can discuss the house because we'll get along all right. We'll get along anything that comes up. All you got to do is come down to the store. No, you don't even need to do that. Just send me word and I'll write up here as quick as I can get here. You understand anything. Just He's capitulated. What he's done is given in. He's, he, he hasn't said it explicitly, but he, what he's saying is, I don't want you to burn my bar. What can I do for you? Here, here's that social contract. He doesn't even begin to see what he's doing because now he's in a position to lose things himself, and he knows it. And he's making these concessions out of fear of what he might lose. He's given control to Adam. It's then that he leaves because it, it, it looks like in his mind they've settled things. As he's on his way out, suddenly Flynn Snopes, Ab's son, appears out from behind a tree. And bottom of 24, um, I was hoping to see you, Varna said. I hear your father has a little trouble once or twice with the landlords. Trouble that may, might have been. Wait, and by the way, how modern is this? Jody's words to Ab. We can talk this through. All reasonable men will talk it through. God. Um, the father didn't undermiss it. What, what Fogner is showing us is the worst thing anybody can do is underestimate evil. Because there's no way you can compete with it once you enter it. But it everything about it makes it clear. The father makes that clear, Ratliff makes it clear. Once you get into the, in fact, Rat, Rat, Ratliff will say it to Varner. He says there's only two men in this county that can deal with people like this. One of them is Will Smith, or I mean Will Varner, and the other one hasn't been proved yet. Who is that? It's Ratliff himself. And we're going to see at the end, he will send that message to Will. He'll say, it ain't been proved yet, because what happens between him and Snopes is a standstill. He thinks he's got him. I want to turn to that. That'll be the last thing we'll look at in just one minute. Um, the other chewed, maybe they never treated him right. I don't know about that, and I don't care. What I'm talking about is a mistake. Any mistake can be straightened out so that a man can still stay friends with a fellow he ain't satisfied. Don't you agree? <laughs> Flem is just chewing his... Um... So he's just saying, um, we can straighten this out, we can be reasonable, we'll get along. Um, and he's making it clear that if Flem wants something, all he has to do is ask. And then Flem says at the bottom of 25, I hear you run a store. Varner stared at... This is page 26. Varner stared at him. Now Varner's face was not bland. I hope everybody sees this. You all write... He had no idea it was going, and now it's come home because now it's going to. It didn't stop at the barn. It's going to go to the store, and as you know from huh? Yeah, from everything that happened, he's, he's going to lose his place in the barn. He's going to lose the gin. This is just the beginning of this takeover. Um, have a cigar, he says, because it's understood in Jody's mind that the agreement's made. He can start at the store. I don't use them. The other said. Just chew, ha, huh? Varna said. I chew, I chew up a nickel now and then until the assumption is out of it. But I never lit a match. To, 
I never lit a match to one yet. Sure now, Vernon said. He looked at the cigar. He said quietly, and I just hope to God you and nobody know ever will. He put the cigar back in his pocket. He expelled a loud hiss of breath. All right, he said, next fall when he's made his crop. And then as he's writing off, he, the last thought he has to himself at the very bottom, hellfire, he said, he was standing just exactly where couldn't nobody see him from the house. I think what we're to see here, we'll learn in the next section that Ab got soured in those deals with Pant Stamper, do you remember? But he's not evil, he's not mean. For Flynn to do this is a clear indication that he's stepping out from the father. That whatever he learned from his father in the way of trading, he's going to take it way beyond anything his father would have ever done. He's going to go out on his own. His father didn't see this happening. And what happens after is something his father would have never done. But this is Flynn. This is the beginning of Flynn's rise. Uh, just very quickly, the, um, the, the, the funniest episode is the episode involving Ab. Snopes, when Ratliff was a young boy and a friend of his, um, when Ab and all these men had this thing about horse trading to see who could get ahead and who could best somebody else. And Pat Stamper had the reputation of being better than anybody. Ab got beat by him and he wanted to get back. So he takes this horse that is falling apart and he, you remember he puts a fish hook under its hide to, to give it energy and, and feed it and then he goes by Pat Stamper's place to sell it, and Pat Stamper does. He gives him a, um, a horse and a, and a mule, and the horse looks much better than the horse that um, Ab gave him. But they go to town and come back, and before they come back, the horses are collapsing. <laughs> the team's collapsing, and, and, and um, Ab is getting worried because he knows that he He's got, he got the worst of the deal, and he's got to do something to get back. So he goes back, makes a trade, and Pat Stamper says he will, but they go into the house to make the secret trade, and we don't know what it is. He brings out a team, and they drive off and come back um, and take the separator that his wife wanted to buy. Where am I going to keep the name? Ab was supposed to go into town to buy a separator with all the money the wife had saved. So the, the missus is going to get in this now. They go into town to get the separator but unload it because it was part of the deal to get the team. So he, he got a team but he had to give up the separator. The wife is obviously not going to be happy when he gets back. And they start off, it's Ab now and young Ratliff is a boy, an eight-year-old boy. And they're driving and it starts to rain. Pat is, I mean, uh, Ab is drunk. Right. He had to drink himself to save himself because he couldn't deal with the stupidity and what he's going to face with his wife. And it rains. Ratliff pulls under a shelter until it stops raining. And when Ab wakes up, he sees that the rain has washed off, that the horse that's in the, in the straps is the bay that he traded earlier. So it was colored, and he finds a bicycle pump in it. That, that Pat Stamper used to inflate it. So it had the appearance of this great horse, and it turns out to be the same horse that he traded, which was a worse horse than the one he. He goes back, having lost the separator with the same horse, probably a worse mule. The wife is furious. She's so angry that she gets in the buckboard and goes to, with a cow, goes to Pat Stamper and says, I want that separator now, loaded. <laughs> He's. 
Stamford knows well enough to deal with an angry wife. Puts the, puts the separator back in the wagon and, and takes it home, but she has to trade in the cow. So they've got the milk separator, no cow. <laughs> And she says to her husband, make sure you get the, she has to go borrow milk so she can run it through just for the sake of using it, even though it's pointless to do it. <laughs> the last episode, I just deals with the exchange with the goats. And I think what I'll do is wait until this week. It's the last episode that closes the phlegm section. And it's really important because it's the section where, where, where Ratliff goes up against phlegm and believes he can outdo it. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. Yeah. Because it's really good. Anyway, this that's the start of the Hamlet. It's the South slowly coming out of its innocence and growing up. You never been to a a farm auction for animals? No. That is that is that what goes on? Are you kidding? No. no. <laughs> Are my, you kidding? My granddad, my grandfather loved to go to auctions. And there's no fraud protection. I mean, oh, there's no, there's no fraud. <laughs> they, they, they paint, they paint.